Welcome to the Global Security and Protection Group podcast with your host, Ron Jacobus. We hope you enjoy these conversations on executive protection and security management as we meet with security practitioners and industry thought leaders. Welcome everyone to episode number seven, part two of the Global Security and Protection Group podcast. This is your host, Ron Jacobus, and I am joined today by two guests, Dave Boone Benton and Sarah Adams. Dave Benton, who is better known by his nickname Boone to many, was one of the four contractors who held the line in Benghazi, Libya, when terrorists attacked the U.S. outpost and later the CIA annex. The events of this attack were depicted in the book 13 Hours, The Secret Soldiers of Benghazi, and then in the movie 13 Hours. Dave has 25 years of combined service in specialized teams and leadership roles in the United States military, law enforcement, and protective security contracting. He has worked in high threat and high net worth protective security and has served as a security contractor for the U.S. intelligence community. Sarah Adams currently works for the Department of Defense as a research and development program analyst. She, much like myself, has worked in government, the private sector, and in the nonprofit world. Sarah has served overseas on behalf of the United States government's intelligence mission as a Central Intelligence Agency targeting officer in Europe, the Middle East, North Africa, and South Asia. She is an industry expert on intelligence and investigations, emergency management, operational planning, government relations, government policy and oversight support, and risk and threat analysis. In addition, Sarah serves as the Chief of Operations for the Ukraine NGO Coordination Network, a nonprofit created to evacuate people in need out of Ukraine while also providing medical supplies, food, and other life-saving humanitarian aid. Dave and Sarah, it is my pleasure to have you both on the podcast today to share your boots-on-the-ground insights about the events that transpired in Benghazi and some of the work y'all have done over the years to identify these attackers who killed Ambassador Stevens, Information Officer Sean Smith, and two GRS operatives, Glenn Doherty and Tyrone Woods. Thanks for having us. Really, thank you guys for joining us on the 10-year anniversary of these attacks uh, to talk about your experience leading up to, during, and after. But before we get to all of that, I first would like to talk to you guys a little bit about who you are and the paths you took that ultimately ended up to your being in Benghazi that year and for you, Dave, that night of the attack. So as far as like going into government service, um, I come from a, a military and law enforcement background. And then growing up in the era where it was okay to play with toy guns and watch G.I. Joe on TV, um, it was just a natural progression. Once I was actually in military law enforcement, um, the assignments I had in the work just kind of led me in that direction. I find that so interesting. And, and I'm curious, did you have any mentors along the way that helped you navigate some of this decision making or set you down those paths? Not really to set me on the path, no. But you always have mentors in law enforcement and military, um, guys to look up to kind of mold you into what type of Marine you'll become, what type of deputy you'll become, you know, what type of protective agent you'll become. There is too many to list, but absolutely. Well, Dave, and, and as I say, sometimes it takes a village and I completely understand what that's like. Sometimes there's just too many individuals to list uh, along the way. And then for Sarah, uh, I have the same question for you. How does an individual who interned for the Walt Disney Corporation then go on to become a targeting officer in the CIA. Yeah, I mean, my path probably wasn't as straight. I went to school for business. I wanted to do in international business, so I've always um, been interested in traveling. I didn't find business very interesting, um, as it happens to probably a lot of people who go to business school. So that's when I went down the path of international relations. And um, when I was in grad school, my focus was Kashmir. So obviously at the time, the CIA was plussing up their Pakistan Afghanistan department. So I was interested in the topic. They needed people like me, and we were kind of a good fit at the time. Wow, Sarah, that is such an interesting and unique path into the CIA, especially through the studying of Kashmir of all places. Um, now, Dave, you've mentioned before in other programs that you started out in the military and then transitioned into law enforcement, but then the attacks on 9-11 happened in 2001, and your intent was to go back and join the military. However, you had a conversation with an individual about the security contracting world long before it was the security contracting world we know today. Now, how did you decide that this was going to be your next move, and how did it ultimately place you in Libya as a contractor? So um, how I ended up in, in that world was after 9-11, or actually during 9-11, I was actually a deputy on night shift, and I just got off. So coming off shift in that morning, obviously, I watched 9-11 happen. Um, from that point, 
you know, I had a urge to go back into the military. And as I was going through that process, I was actually contacted by the State Department's Diplomatic Security Service. And they were starting a program, the High Threat Protection Program, which eventually turned into the WIPS Worldwide Protective Program. So I was actually part of that as a proof of concept to make sure that it would work. So we helped them develop their High Threat Protection Program. So was this kind of a program that was already developed on paper, or did you have some sort of say in the development of tactics or standard operating procedures? And while you were in this role throughout the development lifecycle, how much did you find yourself pulling from your previous law enforcement or military experiences? So it was already a program that was on the books, kind of like the Federal Air Marshal Program. But after 9-11, it was revamped and then modified for the current environment. Um, as far as um, putting it together, it was put together by a lot of different people, especially from the um, Army Special Mission Unit you know, environment. Um, as far as the proof of concept, we were one of the first ones to actually protect a U.S. ambassador on foreign soil. So Dave, what was that like starting out knowing that this was a proof of concept? And what was the pressure like to perform in an environment that was still just so fluid? As far as pressure goes, there wasn't a lot of pressure just because all the individuals that were there are coming from a high pressure, high performance background. Um, but it was more of a, a unknown, you know, how is this going to work? Um, are we doing this correctly? Is there a better way to do this? Are we as efficient and effective as we could be? Dave, I love that. And we're probably going to get into mindset a little bit more later. Um, but it takes a specific person and mindset to choose this kind of work. And you know that better than most. Um, and, and Sarah, what was it like going into Benghazi, Libya? And, and I'd like for both of you to kind of teleport us back to 2012 and to the lead up before these attacks. Um, can you give our audience a sense of what the country was like on the ground for you both and your teams as you operated in country? Sure. I actually had the benefit of spending time in Libya earlier in the year. So I was actually in um, the capital of Libya working targeting operations against terrorists. So I had already been comfortable in Libya. When I went into Benghazi, it was very different than Tripoli. It was um, a lot... It felt more extreme, um, like you didn't see women as often. When I was in Tripoli, it was like being in Southern Europe, right? The women were in skinny jeans. The men had kind of those tight little T-shirts and, and skinny jeans, too. It was almost like I went into a different country when I went into Benghazi. Also, like when I was in Tripoli, I could go out and get coffee. I could go to the mall. Um, in Benghazi, we were kind of like almost like trapped in our annex, it felt like, for most of the time. So it was a very different environment. Luckily, I, I've worked in war zones. I've worked in places more restrictive than Benghazi, so it wasn't a huge shift. But it was amazing to see different parts of the country so different. Like I really could see, wow, this city was really held down by Gaddafi. And they are really affected by it. You know, like there is damage here that's going to last generations and like we weren't going to be able to solve it, unfortunately. So, Sarah, I think that's so incredibly important that you bring up Gaddafi. And, and could you provide our audience with just a little bit more background about what kind of shape he left the country in before he was captured and killed? Yeah, sure. So basically the way I want to look at it is just kind of how it comes about in our investigation. So Gaddafi, you know, he... He basically favored one side of the country and then he held the rest of the country down. Well, obviously, if you're um, disenfranchised by your government, that leads to poverty, it leads to obviously joining extremism groups. And a lot of terrorist groups started popping up that he had to take care of. He obviously supported a lot of terrorist groups, too. Um, he cried his own issues. So anyway, he basically hammered down hard on these terrorists. He locked them up for life. The interesting part is there came a point when we wanted to open up relations with Gaddafi starting 2007-ish, 2008-ish. And so we said, hey, start releasing these political prisoners from these jails and we'll take you off the terrorism list. Well, those weren't political prisoners. Those were terrorists. So starting in 2008, then 2010, a lot of these really bad Al-Qaeda type of guys got out of prison. And then obviously when the air spring kicked off, they all were broken out of prison. So now everyone that he went after is basically running the Libyan revolution. So a lot of people think, oh, it's just the people that rose up. The people would never have risen up if the terrorists wouldn't have gotten out of prison because it was the terrorists who were trained. You know, Libyans didn't even have guns. It was the terrorists who fought in Algeria, in Afghanistan, obviously in Iraq. So, so it just caused this huge 
problem that never basically got dealt with because everybody fought with these terrorists. Then the revolution ended, but the terrorists were all still there and they were all still free. So it sounds like the death of Muammar Gaddafi really left a classic power vacuum in the country, allowing these different groups to kind of run free and relatively unchecked. Yeah, very well. I mean, they were like, for most of these terrorist groups, Gaddafi was their number one enemy, right? Because he was so effective at finding them, capturing them, detaining them. I mean, we even have some of the attackers at the consulate. They were Egyptians. I mean, he captured Egyptians and just threw them in his own jail. He didn't even send them home. So, I mean, this guy ruled with a heavy hand. I mean, obviously, it caused some of his own issues, right? Because then the families of those terrorists um, got involved um, and it became a, a political issue, as you can imagine. But yeah, he, I mean, he was good at locking them up. Oh, he sure was. And, and we won't get into it too much today, but it should be noted that at one time he himself was considered to be a top terrorist by the United States government. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until the early 2000s when he had a change of tune, perhaps not a change of heart, but definitely a change of tune and relinquished his nuclear arsenal and also accepted civil liability for the Lockerbie bombing of which he personally ordered. Now, to get back to your guys' story, um, Dave, you had been in country before prior to this contract. Correct. And Sarah, you had been in country as well, working these issues for an extended period of time. Yeah, well, actually, the really interesting thing is I had been working in capture operations in another war zone. I got asked to come to Libya because they needed to set them up and they wanted someone who had the experience to basically be scrappy and get something going. So um, I had about a week's notice before I went into Libya. So yes, I knew nothing about it when I went in. And then obviously when I left it, I knew way more than I ever needed to know. Oh, I got you, Sarah. And you were actually stationed at the annex. And I know we're going to talk way more about this building and its relationship to the attacks later. But you were with Dave and everyone else in Benghazi leading up to the attack, having just left that morning of. And Dave, you can weigh in on this question as well. But what was the atmosphere like in the city during the months, the weeks, and the days before this attack? Did anything particularly stand out to y'all? from the normal baseline or was it just business as usual? So this is a hard question for a lot of um, uninitiated listeners to really understand sometimes um, because they don't understand that environment. So sure, there were things that were happening where you could tell it was escalating, but there was nothing specifically that raised any specific alarms of something was going to happen at a certain time um, at a certain location. So understanding that environment, there's always threats. Um, It did escalate. But again, that was normal for us. Yeah. And one other thing to point out is at the time in Benghazi, actually starting even back to 2011, there was basically daily assassinations of people. So it's almost like we became immune to it, right? Like every day, a bunch of people got bumped off. There was attacks. Militias were fighting each other. It almost became so normal that you just always expected something to happen. Definitely. So you're saying it's a higher threshold for you guys than most other people, particularly while operating in these high threat environments. You're, it was chaos. <laughs> you're, you're obviously for for individuals who don't work and don't operate and definitely don't bring order to chaos, specifically like Dave, you do. Um, you're saying that no one would have wanted to come to this place, let alone touch it with a 10 foot pole. And yet, Sarah, this is an area that you operate in. Dave, this is what you're there to do. Um, and, and really what you're saying is that your guys' professional barometers operate so differently than the average individual here in the United States. Sure. Correct. So Sarah, as we mentioned, you had been pulled out of the country to work on another assignment the morning of these attacks. But Dave, you were still in country and very much there. Um, can you share, and I know some of it's been released in the book and on screen, but for our listeners today, could you share how these attacks transpired on the evening of 9-11-2012? So that day, obviously, we were very busy with the ambassador's visit, so there was a lot going on. Um, during that time, the feeling was that, hey, it's the anniversary of 9-11, um, nothing specific is on the horizon, but because of this, we should always be in a heightened state of awareness anyway. So it's not like we were expecting anything, but we were still ready for something strange to happen. Um, As the night started to wind down, we didn't let our guard down, but we were preparing to actually get ready to secure for the evening and then, you know, look forward to the next day. Um, And that's when we got the call, hey, we need you in the team room. Um, When that happened, we weren't sure if anything was really going on. We thought maybe it was just a quick intel brief 
on what was going on in Egypt. Got it. And a lot of things were going on in other parts of uh, of North Africa and the Middle East. Um, but leading up to that night, Ambassador Chris Stevens had come to Libya. He had come to Benghazi specifically, and he was staying over at a diplomatic outpost, often referred to as the complex. And it was not far from the CIA annex facility, but this complex was not a full embassy. And it definitely was not staffed with the usual embassy assets like you would see in other parts of the world. That is correct. And in, um, a full embassy gets a complement of certain security procedures. And because this technically wasn't a full embassy, it didn't get that although it should have gotten heightened security because of the environment it was actually in, regardless of how it was classified. So with that heightened security, are you able to talk either generally or specifically about what these security procedures would have been, both for a compound like the one the ambassador was staying in or for a full embassy that we traditionally see around the world? On the State Department side, sure. Um, a complement of either an MSD team and or a um, an SST team, which they did have, <laughs> sorry, all the acronyms, <laughs> um, which, which they did have prior to, you know, the event happening. Um, also, when it comes to physical security of the installation, um, the type of wall, type of ECPs, things like that. And of course, the, the, um, the security force, the guard force the perimeter security force would have been slightly different. Got it. And does this MSD force operate like the Marines that we see in embassies across the world? No. So the MSG, the Marine Security Guard Detachment, that are usually in embassies, are there for classified um, material, not to actually protect the physical perimeters of the embassy. So the MSD is a State Department specialized team, kind of like um, MSD SWAT, they're mobile security deployment guys and girls who are specially trained who come in for high threat environments. And now that's an important distinction to make, you know, that what we're used to seeing are those Marine Security Guard detachments, and those are a different contingency than this MSD State Department team who are tasked with just the protection of personnel and not classified material like the MSG. And then on top of that, who were the 17 February martyrs? We hear a lot about them in the book and also the movie. Um, but can you explain for the listeners in our audience who may be unfamiliar with the complexities of third party in-country protection, who were these guys and what was their role supposed to be, at least on paper? Sure, I'll grab that one. Um, so 17 February Martyrs Brigade was basically one of the largest militias established during the revolution. I believe they had um, somewhere between three to 5,000 members when they were actually fighting against Gaddafi's forces. After the end of the revolution, it was really interesting. A lot of those militias disbanded and they formed into real groups. One of those real groups was obviously Ansar Shari Benghazi. 17 February didn't want to let control of their power and they actually kept operating as a group. So being the most powerful militia, the government of Libya was not able to um, bring them into the fold of the government. So instead, they had to make agreements with them to basically be the security forces, to be the army. I mean, they deployed 17 February to a fight down in Kufra when I was there in the spring. So they were using them as an official government institution. Unfortunately for us, because that was their government arm in the city, that became the armed guards at the U.S. consulate. They were also the guards who protected the ambassador during the revolution when he was a special envoy. So we actually have one of the guards that protected Ambassador Stevens as an envoy, and he was an attacker then the night of the attacks. So um, there's a lot of the 17 February members that you'll see in our book that actually ended up attacking us. So we were basically paying them to be security at the consulate. And instead, they were the attackers on the consulate. Now, Sarah, you referenced this book that you both have been working on for quite some time. It's titled Benghazi, Know Thy Enemy. And I certainly want to dive into more on what you guys have researched on the later half of today's episode. But first, Dave, back to you. As we get to the actual day of the attack, it's like you said, it appeared to be business as usual in the city, and your team was getting ready to batter down the hatches and call it a night when you attended what you thought was going to be a routine threat briefing. But that's not what it ended up being. Can you share that for our audience? Well, before we got over there, um, our team leader called us with a normal voice. And, you know, usually he'll give us, you know, a few minutes to actually get over there. So immediately we started heading that way. Then immediately he popped back on the radio with a little more sense of urgency saying, hey, you guys need to come to the team room right now. So then we knew, hey, something's up. This isn't about Egypt. Um, so once we got over there, 
then we actually got the brief of what was actually going on. And kind of about that time, once we stepped outside, we kind of heard commotion um, off in the distance. So we kind of had an idea of like, hey, I, you know, I think something's going on over at the consulate. And Dave, you as a security professional, certainly somebody who has an extensive background, knowing the security layout of the diplomatic outpost, uh, what were your main concerns for the ambassador and his team that were staying there? What were you thinking as the attack began to unfold at their location? So obviously there's a lot of mental checks that go through your head. Um, but as far as like the DSS guys, my concern for them was what type of security posture are they in? Um, are there already casualties? Are they hunkered down? Do they have safe havens? You know, what is their status? And then secondly, how long can they hold the line until we can get over there and help them? Now, how important is time in this environment? Like you said, they're holding the line. And in this context, how important are hours, minutes, and even seconds? And can you explain to our audience how, as time began to expire, just how difficult things can get for those individuals on the ground who are trying to repel an attack such as this one that the State Department guys were facing? So it's extremely important. You know, it's of my professional assessment that because we took the time that we did, it cost two lives. And now that time you took, could you explain how or why this occurred? What ultimately took so long for your team to deploy over to the diplomatic outpost from the CIA annex? There's a lot of confusion um, during a time like that. Obviously, we have SOPs and TTPs that helped shorten that time. Um, but a lot of it was gathering information. And that happened rather slowly. And a lot of it was friction that we didn't know until after the fact of our team leader actually holding us up along with our COB who are actually holding us up. So we had concerns about Feb 17. Um, they were supposed to be our QRF. We never trusted them and we never really wanted them to be our QRF. Um, so I'll let Sarah talk about it a little more in depth, but Feb 17 was never coming to help us. But our team leader and our COB continued to keep us there um, under the guise that, hey, we're trying to coordinate with Feb 17, so we had support going into the consulate. Yeah, and I want to go a little more into detail with this because Boone's correct. So this is quite misunderstood. More people focus on the fact that the chief of base, as we call it, when he said COB, was not allowing them to go. Obviously, he never would allow them to leave the annex, so they really didn't, knew he wasn't going to let them go, if that makes sense. So we're going to set that aside for a minute. The problem with what happened is on the first phone call the COB made to the head of 17 February, the head of 17 February told the COB, I am not sending you reinforcements. So this is one minute into the attacks. So the COB and their team leader lied to them the entire night that 17 February was responding, that they needed to wait on 17 February, that then eventually they needed to link up with 17 February. So they spent the whole night, right, trying to not fire on their friendlies or waiting on a force that the COB knew the entire time was not coming. So it's a little more than a stand down. He basically lied to his security people who are supposed to keep him safe about the situation on the ground. Now, how important are the lines of communication in this scenario? When you have so much chaos going on around you, how important is it to know if you have reinforcement assets on the way to back you? Or if you guys are just going in on this alone. So any information is key and your life and other lives absolutely depend on it. So um, communication is number one, whether it, it's verbal or it's nonverbal. You have to have some type of communication in situations like that. Agreed. And so now time is expiring as the clock continues to tick. What you've been told obviously hasn't come to fruition. Now, why did you and your team ultimately make the decision to leave the CIA annex and go directly into harm's way? So we were, again, not privy to the fact that our team leader was actually part of our delay. So we were allowing him to do what he does as a team leader and work out any friction between the chief of base and our team. Um, so unbeknownst to us, we didn't know that that was actually going on. So we're waiting for him to do that deconflict. And we're also doing um, pre-operational checks as well on our gear, on our comms, making sure everything's ready to go. As time went on, we're like, hey, this is taking too long. And we vo voiced our concerns several times to the TL, like, look, we're losing the initiative. We need to go. Um, but at some point, we were like, all right, enough is enough. And we were about to just go ahead and go with or without the TL 
And then when the DSS guys came over the radio and says, hey, look, if you guys don't get here right now, we're all going to die. And that was it for us. We're like, look, you know, we're leaving with or without you getting a vehicle or not, but we're popping smoke. So that was 18 minutes after the first call they made for assistance. And Dave, understanding the mindset of the military and law enforcement guys who think more to run towards the sound of gunfire instead of the other way, what was going through your mind as now you're hearing these calls for help on the other end of the radio? Absolutely. So um, two things. One, we need to get there now. You know, we're, we're already behind the power curve. We're too late. But two, there was a lot of confusion of like, why aren't we gone yet? Got it. And so your team has now made the decision to go pop smoke, as you said, in an attempt to go rescue the ambassador and those with him at the complex. As you're en route to the location, Dave, what are you thinking about? What thoughts are cycling through your head as you get closer and closer and you eventually realize you and your team are going to actually engage some individuals that night? So, and this isn't tough guy stuff, um, at the level we were at as professionals, um, it wasn't the first time that we've had experiences like this. And your personal thoughts aren't present. Your personal emotions aren't present. Now it's just operational questions. Um, who am I going to meet? Do I have to deconflict? When I see the terrain, what do I need to negotiate? So it's all operational at that point. Now, Dave, I'd like to ask you to put your instructor hat on for a moment as somebody who trains professionals, both military and law enforcement. And how important is it, whether you're hitting doors as a law enforcement officer or you're going overseas in the military or you're protecting people as a contractor, to have this proper training and background so that when you're in that moment, your professional side takes over while your personal thoughts and concerns kind of take a back seat as you're going through these pre-checks? The training is absolutely key, especially in the law enforcement community, and it needs to be more consistent, especially with like active shooter situations and things like that. You have to have your fundamentals, weapons manipulation, static range type training, but then you also need your application training. But at the end of the day, after your applications training, you need the stress inoculation for some force training. And that's where you really get the mindset to remain calm, focus on your training, focus on the mission and get the job done. I couldn't agree more, Dave. And uh, now... So when you first arrive at the compound, what do you encounter and what is your initial eyes on assessment as you guys have now made your way into the compound? So once we breached the compound, it was all chaos. There was fire, screaming. Um, it was packed. There were people running everywhere. Um, there was at least 80, if not more, people on the compound at that time. So initially it was just chaos and we still had to clear the compound, secure the compound, and then attempt to account for all the Americans and or any other terrorists still left on the compound. Now, Dave, we kind of glossed over it earlier, but how many guys made up the team from the CIA annex that deployed with you to the compound? And just how large of an area was your team responsible for clearing once they were at the location? So our team is always very, very small. Um, again, not to get in SOPs, but we could be by ourselves or there might be six of us. But it's not like in the military where you have the 24-man stack, you know, or the 60-man the platoon. Like, that doesn't exist in our world anymore. Um, so we were extremely small. Um, the facility that we had to clear was actually two facilities combined into one. So we're looking at maybe, you know, um, three, four hundred yards either direction. Now, that's a lot of space to clear with uh, very limited resources, especially when you've got 80 or so individuals that you also have running around a now unsecured area as you attempt to determine who is friend and who is foe. And that's another problem for us. In that environment, it's not like a conventional military or it's not like a law enforcement officer who's in uniform. They don't have standard uniforms. So you might have a dude with a chest rig, some camouflage pants, and some Adidas flip-flop. We don't know if he's a good guy or a bad guy. Goodness, Dave, you really have to be on the ball with some keen situational awareness to keep an eye on everything that's happening in that environment. So, Sarah, obviously, you're no longer in Benghazi. When did you first hear that they were dealing with an attack first over at the outpost and then back at the CIA annex? Well, ironically, um, as I told you, I was in a European country. I ended up getting to my hotel really late and I actually called back to the annex and I, I talked to Boone. And so it was probably about a little after midnight. So they had just finished the first attack on the annex. So basically there was kind of three attacks against Americans near the consulate. 
through the attacks on Americans on the annex. So he had just um, gone through now what would have been the fourth attack on Americans that night. And basically he said he was busy and everyone was okay and then kind of hung up on me. And I thought, oh, he's playing video games. And I went to bed. Um, So I woke up about five in the morning and I had my iPad was lit up by messages from my mom. I have one of those mothers that sends me maybe two texts a month. Um, So I was like, whoa, what is this craziness going on? And she luckily knew I was... um, up in Europe, but she was asking about everybody in Benghazi. So I'm trying to get her back on and I'm turning on the news. And so that's when I found out. And so then I started calling through the numbers in my phone and everybody's phone was dead. And finally Tig answered the phone. uh, And he basically gave me the quick rundown of what happened. And then I talked to Boone and he gave me more details. So about five in the morning, um, I found out, which would have been six in the morning Benghazi time. Got it, Sarah. And Tig, for those unfamiliar with the names of all involved, was one of the guys on your team that night who left with you from the annex to the diplomatic outpost. Correct. Much like Sarah said, when your team arrived at the compound, this was only a small brevity of attacks that you guys encountered during that night and into the morning. So you're now at the compound, your mission is to find Americans and evac them back to the annex. Correct. And so you spend an extensive amount of time searching the area and you guys are coming up empty for the ambassador at this time, right? Yes, correct. Well, tactically, we split our forces. So one could actually search and the other one could continue to clear buildings looking for other terrorists. So once we did that, we reconverged and then continued to look for more Americans. We found one. Um, we weren't able to find the ambassador at that time, but after searching the, the burning building, the villa that was his, we knew that if he was still in there, there's no way he could have survived or they already kidnapped him and he was no longer on the compound. We didn't know which, but we also knew that we were losing time and we couldn't stay on that compound and we needed to get back to the annex. And now, Dave, you had already sent off a group of Americans with the ambassador's diplomatic security team previous to leaving the annex yourselves, right? We did, yes. We actually evac them under fire um, during the second attack on the consulate. And Dave, they beat you guys back to the annex despite having some logistical issues on their way from the compound. They did, yes. Gotcha. And now your team finally makes the decision to also leave the compound. What was your main concern, understanding the force in which the diplomatic outpost had been hit? Were you worried about additional attacks at the compound or a shift in these attacks now being instead directed towards the CIA annex? Yes, we were. One, we were worried that, one, we are a small force and that the terrorists that were initially on the compound at the consulate would, you know, continue to gather strength and then reattack the consulate. At that point where there are no other Americans there, we no longer had a purpose to be there. So instead of waiting for another attack, we also knew that, hey, now we left our annex undefended and we needed to get back to them in case there was an attack there as well. Got it. So you guys get back to the annex. And uh, what was going on when you got there? Did you guys have any time to prep? Was there an immediate attack or some lead time that allowed you to kind of get your ducks in a row for what was going to be a pretty long night. So once we got back, there was actually a a lull to where everything was calm, you know, but we knew it wouldn't stay that way. So we immediately took our pre-designated security positions and waited for um, an assault force to show up. The assault force that did show up initially, we weren't sure who they were. And we tried to de-conflict to make sure that it wasn't Feb 17 and they weren't blocking off the road to protect us. Um, And in fact, it wasn't a force there to protect us. They were attackers there to attack us. If we would have known that beforehand, then um, we could have acted quicker to stop them from even um, attempting a first assault. But again, not knowing who they were, uh, we weren't going to fire on a group just because they had weapons. Everybody had weapons. Got it. So your rules of engagement out there were pretty strict. So our rules of engagement are just as strict as U.S. law enforcement would be. Um, But that's that's a decision that we make. That's not something that we have to look up higher to to get a a decision to fire upon them. We can make that decision for ourselves, but they are pretty strict, yes. 
Yeah. So, uh, so Sarah, this might be a question that's best directed towards you, but Dave, feel free to jump in as well if you can. Um, but could you explain what the CIA annex infrastructure was as opposed to maybe other types of facilities that the CIA operates around the globe? And what made this unique in this area of Benghazi, Libya? Sure. I think one of the best things to answer your question is I want to explain to you that these compounds were actually in residential neighborhoods in pretty nice residential neighborhoods, right? So while, yes, a lot of things happen in Benghazi, a lot of crimes happen in Benghazi, it's not like they happened a lot in these neighborhoods unless they were, of course, targeted assassinations, right? If you went and joined a security force, the terrorists are going to come and bump you off in your home, probably, or in your mosque, because it's easiest places to target you. So we weren't in areas where there was constant fighting. Um, and then, like he noted, the consulate compound was gigantic. Like he said, it's two compounds combined. They broke a wall in the middle. Ours was pretty compact. So we, we just had several buildings all together. Um, so I think that actually helped benefit them that we had a much smaller compound. Absolutely. It, it allowed our small force to secure it more tactically. Got it. Now, certainly in the book, you describe the specifics about your counter assault game plan and the SOPs you had in the event the annex was ever attacked and your team was required to make an Alamo-like stand. Um, and then in the movie, we get a visual representation of what this then looked like. Um, but I'm curious, how did your team decide the way in which you would mount your defensive posture at the annex? Was this developed by your team specifically, or were there already SOPs and designations made previous to your arrival in country that simply just required implementation? No, that, that's something that um, as a team we develop to any location we go to. If we're going to be there for any length of time, um, we're always going to have some type of plan. And since that was a place where we were there for a long length of time, that was all preset, pre-designated, just part of our um, contingency planning. So once the attack on the annex, so once the attack on the annex occurred, you guys simply responded to predetermined locations where you then launched your counter assault on the attackers. Absolutely. So Dave, the, the fight continues into the morning. And at what point did you learn that there might be some help on the way? So exactly what time? I don't know specifically. It is well documented. I just don't know specifically. But um, later on that night, we were given word that we would be reinforced by um, our sister team from another location, which was what we call Team Tripoli. And also that a special mission unit from North Carolina would be coming with them. And that was not actually factual. <laughs> All right, got it. So this Tripoli team is on its way, or at least that's what you were led to believe. Um, but it was understood that until they arrived, you guys were it. You were going to have to provide your own defense and hold down this fort until they were able to navigate the almost 500-mile drive south to your location. Yes, we, we, we did believe that. So... Um, there were two JSOC operators that came with our Tripoli team, but what's always misconstrued is that they were sent by DOD. They were not. They just happened to be there and they're like, hey, can we come with you? Wow, those two operators made an executive decision to head into a fight that I'm sure most other people wouldn't ever even think to volunteer themselves for. <laughs> and they went without asking for permission. Man, Dave, there's just something to be said about that. Um, so these guys are on their way. Meanwhile, the attacks have pushed on into the morning, and at some point, your team begins to take mortar attacks at the annex. That is correct, yes. Um, there was a, a lull after one of the attacks, um, and then we thought things were going to be another ground assault, which it was. It was initiated from a side that we haven't taken contact from during that whole night. So there was a brief engagement of small arms fire. And then there were six mortar rounds that came in fairly rapidly and extremely accurately. And Dave, for our audience who doesn't have the specific military background or doesn't understand the significance of a mortar attack, can you explain some of the complexities that go into landing effective hits on a target location? So it takes a lot of math. <laughs> it's really all math. Um, but it, it takes you knowing your location, the location you want to hit, making sure you have the correct app before that and the correct mass solution, and then putting those rounds exactly where you want them to go. So it actually takes a lot of training, and you have to be well-trained and actually educated in order to do something like that. Now, Dave, is this something that an individual can pull together on the fly, or is it really something that a team would need time and perhaps dry runs to really land effective hits on a target area right out of the gates? 
So it would take a very extremely seasoned professional at the highest level to be able to pull something off like that on the fly. Like our guys could do something like that. Um, but no, it would have to be pre-planned and there was intelligence gathered that night in order to do that effectively. Um, they knew where we were. It wasn't a secret. So there was probably pre-planning and pre-reconnaissance well before that night in order to do something like that anyway. Wow. Now, Dave and Sarah, I'd like to take a brief pause and listen to a message from our episode sponsor, the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation. And to our listeners, stay tuned. We'll be back with more from Dave and Sarah after this message. Today's episode is sponsored by the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation. Glenn Doherty was a Navy SEAL, sniper, corpsman, and a member of the Special Operations community for over two decades. He was part of Operation Freedom in Iraq, responded to the bombing of the USS Cole, the rescue of Jessica Lynch, and was deployed countless times around the globe. Glenn lost his life a decade ago in the terrorist attack in Benghazi, Libya. In the wake of his loss, the Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation was established. As a 501c3 charity, GDMF provides educational scholarships to members of the special operations community as a means of receiving an advanced degree to transition from military to civilian life, or in many cases, while staying active duty with the ultimate goal of setting oneself up for success post-military retirement. Since its inception, the foundation has awarded over 100 scholarships to some of the finest men and women in our military today. For more information or to donate, please visit theglendowertyfoundation.org. Welcome back, everyone, to the GSPG podcast. Uh, we are speaking with Dave Boone Benton and Sarah Adams about the attacks in Benghazi on 9-11-2012. Dave was on the ground during the attacks, and Sarah had just left the country the morning of to assist on an assignment in Europe. And uh, we have been getting their insights and a firsthand account of these events that transpired on that evening and into the following morning. Um, and we'll be discussing shortly a book that they have been diligently working on for some time now titled Benghazi, Know Thy Enemy. The book is a culmination of their research that has identified a number of individuals responsible for or present at these attacks. And unfortunately, at the time of this episode's release, the book is still awaiting a final sign-off from the DoD after already passing the rigorous book review board at CIA. So Dave, we were talking before the break about the mortar attacks that occurred in the early morning hours of this attack and how something like this would have required significant time and pre-planning before the evening of the initial attack on the diplomatic outpost mere miles away from the CIA annex. And Sarah, this might actually be a better question for you, but Dave, but Dave again, jump right in if it's one that you can also weigh in on. The CIA annex... You know, you said people were aware that it was there. And I'm assuming being the CIA, it didn't have a big sign that said CIA facility plastered on the outside of it. But what was this facility? And was it a classified facility? Um, and if so, how did so many people not only know of its existence, but of its exact location? So um, I'll answer part of it, and then I'll let Sarah take over. But if you think about um, being in the worst hood in L.A., and then you have like LAPD D platoon come move in, like you're going to stand out, you know? So it doesn't matter how secret you think you are. If you're not from that neighborhood, if you didn't grow up in that neighborhood, if your family's not rooted in that neighborhood, you're going to stand out. Another thing is that overseas, most people in those environments, if they see Westerners or Americans, whether you are or not, they automatically assume that, you know, you're, you're CIA. So um, it was no secret that, hey, Westerners live here and they're probably CIA. Yeah. And then more specifically, um, you know, we'll get to, into it a little bit when we talk about the attackers. But what we explain to people is Al-Qaeda attacked the U.S. consulate. It's very clear. We can tell by the members who were there. Actually, the attack on the CIA annex was by a local militia. Remember, the CIA in country and also the State Department officials met the heads of these militias. So they knew our COB. Um, they knew where we were located. They actually called our CIA annex Bob's house. So these militia leaders knew where the house was. So they didn't have to do anything special to find us because they lived in the local community. Benghazi is not a big city. It's maybe the size of like Green Bay, Wisconsin. So it really was like a small town atmosphere. 
Got it. So obviously you guys stuck out a bit as Westerners um, and people were able to make some assumptions. Uh, but also when you're dealing with third party in-country protective security, you're kind of going to have to compromise a little bit of that covertness in order to coordinate with these protection groups about the security at both the compound and even where your CIA annex facility is located. Correct. And, and the easiest way to do that is to hide in plain sight. That makes perfect sense, and I think that's really all we need to address about that on this podcast. Um, so, so Dave, Glenn Doherty and his team arrives, and then the actual rescue force eventually shows up. What is the next hurdle for you and your team to finally get out of country? So there was actually a lot of confusion there um, because I, I was actually left um, in the compound, and I was the last one to come down off of the roof. I didn't know we were evacuating, and I was never told that. So we were waiting for daylight and it was starting to become daylight because the fight was going to shift. It would become different because at night we own the night. So we had night vision capability. When the sun came up, it kind of evened the playing field. So we were actually preparing for another assault, but a bigger assault with reinforcements. So we had no idea we were even going to evacuate. So how important would it have been? And certainly help did arrive. But like you said, you guys own the night. You've got night vision goggles and some other tools that offset the balance into your favor during a nighttime firefight. Um, but now how does it even out once the sun goes up and daylight arrives? So at night, they couldn't actually identify where our positions were until they got too close. And once they were that close, it was too late. So in the daytime, they could actually use a little more standoff and actually identify our positions and use the bigger weapon systems that they had, like their gun-mounted um, trucks and or their RPGs, to more specifically target our positions. And what was your main concern about some of this heavy equipment, those trucks known as tacticals, the RPGs being utilized during the daytime? And knowing the security features at the annex, what were some of these concerns? So daylight, we wouldn't have been able to hold it. At some point, we would have lost control. And we would have had to go to ground and then exit the, the facility and then start running through the streets. Um, so in the daytime, we, we lost, lost that cover of darkness to where their RPG fire would have been more effective. And then they could have more effectively used their anti-aircraft guns, which we had no cover for that. Gotcha. And then at that point, uh, you guys would have all been forced out of the complex to run through the streets. And uh, it's got to be next to near impossible to keep everybody on your team and then those you're protecting in one big group as you try to navigate through the city. Um, and thank God that scenario did not end up playing out and instead helped it arrive. And your next hurdle was the drive back up to Tripoli from Benghazi, all 500 some miles of it, and then ultimately out of the country via plane. Well, we still need to get to the airport. And at this time, there's still a lot of confusion. We still don't know um, who attacked us or why they attacked us. I still didn't know the whereabouts and or the status of the ambassador. Um, we still thought that maybe he was kidnapped. So there was a lot of unknowns, and then we still needed to navigate several miles of city in an environment that we weren't sure of to get to the airport. And then once we got to the airport, we didn't know who controlled that at the time as well. So I think for many who are familiar with this story, or at least the fact that these attacks occurred, uh, the story kind of shuts down, and it certainly did cinematically in the movie at the end of the Annex attack. Um, and what you're telling me is that your team and you were still at the heightened state of mind, ready for the next contact with unfriendly forces during your drive all the way up to the airport. Absolutely. And even at the airport, we maintain a security posture until we actually got on a bird and started to fly out. One thing that a lot of people don't understand is the force that actually came to the annex to help transport to the airport, we had no prior relationship with them. So they're getting in a convoy, right, with 30 armed vehicles of guys they really don't know. It was more those visual cues, hey, they're friendlies, they're here to help us. They actually ended up being Gaddafi loyalists. Nobody is really understanding of this. Um, it gets misconstrued that the group that actually shot the mortars is the one that came as a rescue force. Not true at all. So yeah, we were basically saved by an underground group of Gaddafi's people. So not only are they moving through an environment they don't know, but now they're surrounded by people they don't know. And then obviously after the fact, we find out the people they didn't know were Gaddafi's people as well. Wow, what an interesting world over there and something that is so difficult for Westerners to wrap their heads around, um, as it sounds like allegiances rise and fall almost as often as the wind blows over there. Yeah, and I think the one thing we should focus on, and that's very important, is 
they were Gaddafi's people, and a lot of people look at Gaddafi as bad. But remember, Gaddafi's people went after the terrorists. They were counter-terrorist focused. They were on the same page as us when you look at that focus to take it to the terrorists. And I think that's why they aligned with us that night and got us out of there. Oh, that's very interesting, Sarah. And uh, and so, Dave, your team now is at the airport in Tripoli, still maintaining a security posture. How long did it take you guys to get off the ground, out of the airport, and somewhere much safer? So there's two parts to that. Um, our first priority was to evacuate the base personnel and all the wounded. And we did that. So once they were wheels up, we probably waited for another hour or two hours before the actual assault team was actually evacuated on a Libyan C-130. So you guys arrive at the airport and you're still, even now, being transported and assisted by Libyan individuals, not yet American forces. The assault force, yes. Yeah, and also the first plane that came that brought Team Tripoli was a private Libyan who gave him his plane to use, again, a Gaddafi loyalist. That's the plane they took the injured out and the base personnel. Then they actually end up waiting for the Libyan C-130 because the C-130 could only fly in the daytime. So um, they brought up this rusty, dirty old plane and flew it over and they got on. I mean, I think it was very discouraging that an American plane didn't land at that airport because also from the start of the night, the Libyan Air Force gave blanket approvals for the Americans to bring any aircraft they wanted into Benghazi. They didn't take the offer. That is something that should be of note. Um, and now, Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, but your team waited for the ambassador's body to arrive at the airport. Yes, that's correct. At some point during that time, we were all finally notified um, of the ambassador's whereabouts and his condition, which was deceased. And then he was brought to us in a very respectful manner. And his body was handled very respectfully. So the assault team um, respectfully handled all of the deceased and transported them back to Tripoli. And now your team actually had an opportunity to leave before he arrived, correct? Yes. And you and your team opted to stay and instead wait for the ambassador to be transported and leave together, leaving no Americans behind. So um, we didn't know where he was up until a certain point. So once we knew where he was, we were also told that, hey, we will bring him to you. Um, but during the fighting earlier on that night, we had no idea. And part of Team Tripoli was actually to find his whereabouts and rescue him. Well, actually to bring him back, because at one point we were actually told he was alive. Yeah. And the interesting part is that was their mission. They came to Benghazi. That, that's what they believe their mission was. Obviously, his team leader gave him another mission saying they came to reinforce you. So their mission was to come in and find the ambassador. The, the unfortunate thing for them is once they got to the airport, they were trapped at the airport because the militia that essentially ended up firing the mortars on the annex was holding them at the airport to the point where they could co-locate all the Americans to do the mortar attack, if that makes sense. So they sat at the airport for three and a half hours before anyone gave them a ride from the airport. So they weren't allowed to go do the mission to find the ambassador. And then, of course, while at the airport, they were notified the ambassador was now deceased. So their plans changed to go to the annex. And then obviously them traveling to the annex then allowed for the mortar strike to get set up. Now, what you encountered in Benghazi, Dave, seems to be a very complex, coordinated attack on Americans abroad. In the United States, we now have UASI grants specifically dedicated to preventing something like this in our own country. And specifically, the coordination that took place by the attackers from Benghazi all the way up to Tripoli seems to be something that took a significant time to pre-plan rather than something that was just carried out spur of the moment. It did, and it wasn't. And then one of the things that we actually jump into in the book is um, the alliances and, and the preparation that it took to pull this off, but it also shows how our current administration is aligned with terrorists. Wow. So, uh, so Dave and Sarah, this book that we've been talking about, Benghazi, Know Thy Enemy, um, it's something you guys have been working on for goodness. It feels like almost a decade now. How did you two decide to link up and put this research into book form? Sure. Yeah, in about um, approximately 2014, um, we had come together to put together our own investigation on Benghazi, kind of A to Z, here's everything that happened. It wasn't actually focused on any attackers. We started working on that together. And then I got maybe about three, four months into that. 
I got asked to go to the Benghazi committee. So we kind of set it aside because I said, hey, we can affect maybe a lot of this change inside the Benghazi committee. Once I got on the Benghazi committee, I realized, you know, Congress has their lanes in the road. One of their lanes, of course, is not to go identify attackers. So we kind of put it back on the table. And then I went to a meeting at the CIA and I walked into an elevator and there was an analyst I used to work with, like kind of one of those rock stars, like you'd hire him for anything, you know? And he goes to me, what are you working on now? And I said, the Benghazi committee. He's like, whoa, I wouldn't touch that with a 10 foot full pole. And I said, wow, if one of the best analysts in the CIA is saying he won't touch the Benghazi attackers, the CIA is not doing it. And I remember leaving and I contacted Boone and I said, I don't think the CIA is going after the Benghazi attackers. We already had major doubts about the FBI's investigation. And that was basically the day we said, we're going to self-fund this and we're going to do our own open source investigation, completely separate from what anything the government collected. And we have gotten to a point now, as you know, we're putting it out. We've identified um, by name over 100 of the attackers that were there. We've been able to clearly show it was an Al-Qaeda-directed attack obviously, because of the Al-Qaeda members who were on the compound. We also got to show some very concerning things. Um, we showed that the pictures released by the FBI, they made sure to not release any of the Al-Qaeda terrorists. So when you actually go back to the pictures that they release, you will notice when you look at our book, it is not the members of Al-Qaeda. They re released the pictures of the members of the local militia elements who never were Al-Qaeda or Egyptian Jihad or Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Um, a lot of the different terrorist groups had terrorists um, at the attacks. So it's going to be pretty um, eye-opening for people who don't actually understand that this was a pre-planned uh, Al-Qaeda attack. So Sarah, you talk about the gathering of information in this book and what role or significance did open source intelligence have on the information that's provided in your book? Well, like I said, we did the whole um, investigation unclassified. I think what helped us, though, is the fact that we were emotionally involved. It was easier to ask people for information when we said we were there or our friends died or we're doing this to get justice for our friends because people in Benghazi have been going since 2011, they've dealt with these terrorists. We fought them one night. Every day they had to deal with assassinations from them. I mean, a whole war happened in Benghazi because of these terrorists. So we had a sympathetic population who's are also suffered through. There was full families, every male of their family member, every male in their family were killed in Benghazi by these terrorists. So we were lucky in that vein that, um, there was at least people in Libya that wanted to do the right thing. We did get a lot of comments, though, that we were wasting our time because our government didn't actually want to go after these terrorists, but we just kept plowing through. Wow. And so, Dave, this might be a good question for you, but Sarah, please jump in if uh, you would like a piece at it. Um, how important is it to identify these attackers for Americans who may be returning to the area, and especially operationally, if we're going to send assets back in a country or even reestablish a full embassy presence once again in the area? So that's a very good question, because um, the people who are currently in power are terrorists and they do support terrorism. So basically, if we send anyone else back over there, if we reestablish um, a diplomatic presence there, then they will be dealing directly with terrorists and some of them who are directly involved in you know, the Benghazi attacks. Um, one thing about the book, it also goes into um, the implications of some of our policies that have kind of come to bite us in the butt. Some of the people who are actually attackers on the consulate I've actually crossed paths with in Iraq and other places because they weren't handled appropriately the first time and they were released from prison when they shouldn't have been and they've gone on to kill a lot of people and commit other terrorist acts that are very well known. So Sarah, on that note, as a former targeting officer and uh, as a former targeting officer, what is your understanding and what can you share about the pathway of violence for these terrorists? It seems not to be just a one-off thing for these individuals who continue to perpetrate attacks until stopped or jailed indefinitely. So what is the significance of letting these people back out into the world to continue what they do around the globe? Uh, like Dave said, he's ran into some of these individuals during his travels internationally. Yeah, this is pretty critical for people to understand because there's a lot of misinformation that 20 random guys got together and overran a consulate one night. A lot of these attackers have been fighting. Some have been fighting since the 80s. Some have been fighting since the 90s. Some had been second generation. So they're 
father fought in those wars and now they fought. Um, I think the hardest part of our investigation was the brothers. So if if they told me you and your brothers um, attacked, I'd have to find out which of your brothers, right? You have seven brothers. All seven were terrorists. Um, we were kind of shocked by how um, large the terrorist families were. Um, basically, like the Al-Qaeda guy who carried out the attack on the compound, him and um, basically seven more members of his family were terrorists. Three of his cousins, it was 10. Five of them died in Iraq fighting U.S. forces. So these are long battle-hardened networks. Um, it's not just locking up the one, you know, I mean, his brothers are terrorists, his father's a terrorist. Um, it's the disease, unfortunately. And um, I think the problem we're having with all these terrorists, no matter what country you're talking about, they think once they're locked, they're going to get out because they've been able to get out now. And I think that's the problem. There is not um, the repercussions, right? People aren't getting death sentences. People aren't getting life in prison because there is this hope that some aid organization will come and release them. I mean, we even had some of the terrorists released by Gaddafi's own foundation because he was trying to make good with the West. And so some of our terrorists actually were released by his personal NGO. So, so it's very concerning the light hands some people put on these terrorists. Another problem is some of the terrorists were arrested in Europe. Europe you could plan an attack to kill 100 people. They'll put you in jail for 18 months. That's it. Um, huge issues in Europe with them not taking terrorism seriously. Huge issues. Uh, and so with that understanding, the book where you identify a significant portion of these attackers, um, Dave and Sarah, to what extent can this be used by executive protection teams or security management professionals that have assets throughout these countries? Is it something that can be used as a tool for POI management as teams move through some of these high threat areas? You, you absolutely can, especially in that region of the world. Um, there aren't many nice places in Africa and the governments are very similar. There's usually a corrupt government. So for any protective team or corporation using a protective team, you can definitely gain a lot of protective intelligence from this and how some of these governments might actually operate and also how some of these actually, um, some of these terrorist groups operate. Something that we actually found um, that's in the book is the way that we label terrorists and terrorist groups is not the same way that the terrorists actually look at it and look at themselves. And another thing we really tried to focus on is that piece you talked about. Like, we didn't want to just say, hey, these were our terrorists. We want to highlight who they are to protect other people. So a key component of the 100 terrorists that we identified is we put a lot of painstaking effort into finding their current status. So if the terrorist currently lives in Tripoli now, you know it. So if you have an embassy in Tripoli, you know this Benghazi attacker is living in this city. And so that's something we put a lot of time into because we want other people to not be affected by these same terrorists. Oh, I think it's a great thing that you two have done. And it's an incredible resource that you've put together, not only to honor those who didn't make it back from this attack, but also then to protect others from future attacks or even to prevent these future attacks. So I think there's a lot of good work that went into this book between the two of you. And I want to thank you both for your work on this project. A quick side note to add to that, what a lot of people don't understand is when we think about a terrorist, we think about someone from the Middle East area, the region or the North African region. Some of these terrorists were actually Europeans. Yeah, I think it's important to note that we've seen this before. There are a lot of different terrorism cases that come out of the UK, Germany, France, and the rest of Europe. Yeah, two Canadian attackers at the consulate. Absolutely. And we've seen it even with ISIS. There were a lot of individuals within the United States who either tried to get out to operational forces or were stopped by U.S.-based law enforcement on their way out of the country. Um, this is truly a global issue, and it's something that hasn't gone away, although you don't hear it very frequently in the news anymore, as there's been a shift to violent extremism and away from the global war on terrorism. Um, but yet, uh, like you two have highlighted, the threats are still there and they're still very relevant. Yeah, and I want to note a point just because you come from law enforcement, something that we learned. Al-Qaeda was so prepared in this attack that they had Libyan passports, official Libyan passports made for the attackers in fake names. So they could leave immediately after the attacks if they wanted to. These are passports made officially by the government of Libya. Um, as Boone had said numerous times, the majority of our terrorists were financed by the government of Libya. They still are. So when I tell you there's a terrorist in Tripoli, he's fighting in Tripoli right now for the government of Libya. So we need to keep that in mind. These terrorists can get passports very easily. One of the German terrorists said he was given a Libyan passport. Um, so we've seen this in Afghanistan too now, right? The Taliban are issuing passports to non-Afghan 
terrorists. So we do need to keep that in mind um, that these passports from these countries are compromised. And that is a huge security issue. Sarah, you're right. That's a huge security issue. And uh, perhaps we need to bring you back. And Dave, you're always welcome back here as well to talk about the ripple effects. And when you have these vacuum spaces where organizations or terrorism groups are able to come to power and then become the actual country representatives. Um, And it's almost as if we went full circle from 2001 to now, um, as we tried to prevent and permanently dismantle what has now come back to power. We have a Taliban-led government in Afghanistan and a terrorism-led government, it sounds like, now in Libya. And certainly the Arab Spring brought on a lot of change, and not all of it was for the better. Um, and, And while Dave and Sarah, on a separate note, um, I'd like to give you both the opportunity before we wrap things up today to share with our listeners who have only seen both Glenn Doherty and Tyrone Woods, um, their persona rather, on the big screen in the movie 13 Hours. Is there anything about these two men, um, Glenn, known as Bub, and Tyrone, known as Roan, to you guys, that the American public does not know? So, uh, unfortunately, the, the movie doesn't give justice to who those two actually were. And although the movie was done well, it doesn't really capture their personalities. Um, I didn't know Bub as well as I knew Roan, because although I knew of Bub, we didn't really work together a lot. And I did have more time with Roan. So Roan specifically is the exact opposite of the way they portray him in the movie. Um, Physically, He's spot on, like he was a very physical um, man, but he was also a kind and gentle man. He wasn't the rough, tough, typical tough guy. He was very intelligent and, and very caring as well. I can speak quick to Bub because I actually worked with Bub in the spring. He was basically one of the GRS who guarded me when I was in Tripoli. And Bub is just one of those adventurous souls. Um, he is really, was really involved in social issues, you know, any um, issues involving children, hunger, famine, like those are things that he really cared about. The odd thing is, is when Boone told me Bub died, I had no idea, obviously, he was in Benghazi, but I didn't know he was back in Libya because when he left Tripoli, he got hit by a car. He was riding his bike in San Diego and just a motorist hit him and he was in recovery. So I thought he was still home in California recovering from his accident. So so it was a really big shock to all of us, um, especially who served in Tripoli Station because Bub was um, just a very loved figure there. You know, Dave and Sarah, there is something to be said about the knuckle-drager profession, the contractors and protectors who risk their lives daily to protect others. But there's an element to these individuals that unless you serve directly with them or around them, you never really get to see. And while it's tough to put all that on screen or even between the pages of a book, these protectors have such complexity and depth. Dave, you're one of them. I've listened to you speak on different interviews and on podcasts, and I've got nothing but respect for the way you think and how you see the world around you. And I think people who see just the outside shell of these contractors and and only get to know them through this lens uh, only get to see a shell of the person that these individuals truly are. Yeah, good point. So as we wrap this episode up, I want to thank you both for your time today, staying on for an extended period of time. Uh, Dave, thank you for your service, both as a military veteran, a law enforcement officer, and for protecting those who continue to serve this nation around the globe. Um, Thanks, Tracy Soil, as a law enforcement officer. Thank you, sir. And uh, Sarah, thank you for all your work, um, both in the public sector and the private sector, and your continued work, even at your nonprofit, uh, helping Ukrainians fight off the Russians in Europe. I would love to have you guys both back again in the future. Uh, but until then, I hope you guys stay well, stay safe, and stay healthy. You too. Thank you. you. And to all our listeners today, uh, thank you for your continued listenership and support of the GSPG podcast. Until next time, stay safe. This episode of the GSPG podcast is dedicated to the four Americans who died in the 2012 Benghazi attacks and their family members. Today we remember Ambassador Chris Stevens, Information Officer Sean Smith, and two CIA GRS operatives, Glenn Doherty and Tyrone Woods. May we never forget the sacrifices they made to make this country and this world a better place.